turn to Isaiah, please, this morning. We are wrapping up uh, the first major section um, for Isaiah. Uh, the first major section is chapter 1 through chapter 39. We're going to end at the beginning of Advent. Uh, beginning, Advent begins this year on November 28th, Sunday, November 28th. Our Advent series is called Christ in the Carols. Uh, so we'll take a break from Isaiah, go into Christ in the Carols, then get back into Isaiah afterwards. But we'll take a break. We're taking a, a biblical look at five wonderful Christmas carols that we love to sing uh, during Christmas season. And our hope as we look at these carols is not only see the, the, the theological richness uh, of these songs, but also stir our hearts to a greater affection for Christ as we look to the Word of God that has shaped these Wonderful songs um, that we love to sing. So that's the plan. Uh, it's going to be a great time. I want to uh, just invite you to come out during Advent. We'll have our wreath. We'll have our Advent reading. And we'll just we'll do a series called Christ in the Carols. Also, very excited to tell you that next week, November 7th, uh, Pastor Ed Marcel, who planted his church in 1997, uh, who was the former pastor of Terra Nova Church, will be here to preach for us on Sunday. Mark your calendars. Let your friends know. Bring them out. Ed Marcel is a good friend of King's Chapel. Planted his church, as I said, in 97. Uh, was a Terra Nova church. Now he is the director of church planting and multiplication at a uh, place called Harbor Network. So that's happening. Mark your calendars. Come out uh, next week uh, to hear Ed Marcel. But for now, we're in Isaiah. So turn there with me to chapter 36. Walking through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we find ourselves in chapter 36 this morning. And we'll look at chapter 36 and we'll go through chapter, uh, into chapter 37, verse 7 is where we will end um, our time. So that's our scripture lesson. 36 through 37, 7. I'm reading from the ESV. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. Verses will be up on the screen, some of them anyway, um, but follow along in your Bibles. There's some in the back. If you don't have one, just take it home with you. It's our gift. So as we jump into the text, uh, let's remind ourselves that the world power, the dominant world power in this day of Isaiah writing is the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian empire. The 10 tribes to the north called Israel, also known as Ephraim, had made an alliance with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, the nation of Syria, to to stop the, the threat of the Assyrian empire. They also, as we know, pushed up on their little brother Judah to the south, the two tribes to the south, known as Judah, to join them. King Ahaz of Judah said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not joining Israel. I'm not joining Syria to fight against Assyria, Assyria, but rather what I'll do is I'll make an allegiance with the enemy. So Judah makes an alliance with the Assyrian nation. Well, that didn't go well, as we know. And Ahaz, rather than trust God, Rather than trust and not fear man, he fears man and makes an alliance with Assyria. Things don't go well, as I said. And God in his sovereignty takes the Assyrian nation and sends the Assyrian nation down to do a whooping up on Israel and Syria. And in 721 BC, we know that the Assyrian army marched into Israel, the northern kingdom, into their capital called Samaria and decimated it in 721 BC. But they weren't done yet. The Assyrian nation continues southward and headed toward Judah, whose capital city is Jerusalem. They are at the door of Jerusalem. That's our text. The king is no longer Ahaz. The king now is Hezekiah, his son, 
who did a reform. We read in 2 Kings 18, he did a reform. He, he tore down the, the, the idols, the, these high places where there was idol worship in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. He tried to bring reform back. In fact, 2 Kings tells us that Hezekiah was a great king. There was no king like him before or after him. It also says in 2 Kings 18 that he, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, rebelled against the Assyrian nation. Didn't join forces like his father Ahaz did. Hezekiah actually rebelled against the Assyrian empire. He would not serve them. But what we learned over the past few weeks is that Hezekiah, even though he had a, a reform, he sinned against God, and rather than trust God himself, he ran southward from Judah, southward into Egypt to find his refuge and to seek protection. He, he ran southward to Egypt. He didn't trust his God. He, choose, he chose fear, not faith. He sought protection and shelter from Egypt, not the Holy One of Israel. And up to now, as we get to chapter 36, the first 35 chapters, the genre of our, our, our scripture lesson each week has been poetry, parallelism. Sometimes it's also known as chiastic structure. It's a structure that, that's used in Jewish poetry. But now, as we jump into chapter 36, you're going to see a major change for the first time. And really the only time, the next few chapters, it's not poetry anymore. It's actually narrative. It is, it is a narrative, a historical narrative, or we would say redemptive history of what God is going to do and what God has done. It's a narrative, not poetry. And you can tell the difference if you have your Bibles open. Uh, the poetry, you can see the columns are kind of like just in the center of the page. Now all of a sudden you get to chapter 36 and you see the words spread from side to side. It goes from poetry to narrative. This, this poetic usage that that Isaiah uh, brings out and it kind of like invokes the 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 uh, uh, the mind on all these pictures we've been seeing over and over and kind of stirring the emotion all of a sudden we just get the straight up historical narrative and we'll see historical narrative from chapter 36 through chapter 39 and then we get into the second part of the book chapter 40 goes back to poetry mainly anyway so uh, just to remind you, as we read chapter 36 through 39, today 36 and 37, remember, Isaiah now is giving to us a historical narrative, redemptive history, what has happened, what has happened, what he's already told us poetically a few chapters before. So sort of like we, 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 Isaiah is bringing this poetic uh, reality of what's going on in Judah, as the Assyrian nation is on the doorstep of Jerusalem, threatening, the Assyrian army is threatening Jerusalem. We saw it poetically. Now Isaiah just goes, okay, now let me give you the backstory, the historical narrative of what I've just been saying poetically. Is that following me? Okay? So you'll see as I read the text. And again, Jerusalem's at the door. Uh, excuse me. The Assyrian nation is at the door of, of Jerusalem. King Hezekiah has fearfully failed uh, 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 seeking the Lord at this point. He sought Egypt. So what I want to do is we get into this narrative. I want to ask three questions, and it's, it comes right from the text. Who will you trust, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 36? Who will deliver you, chapters 36, 11 through 22? And then finally, who will you listen to? Okay, Have your Bibles open, your apps open uh, on your phone or whatever. Those are the three 
outlines, headlines we're going to use to go through this narrative. So number one, who will you trust? Verses one through ten. Now I will read God's word from the ESV. Um, Hear the word, the authoritative inspired word of God. Isaiah 36, verses one through ten. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent to Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh, I'm going to call him Rab after a while because I ain't going to say that all day long. Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. Okay, they're coming to Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, Johah, the, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Okay, this is meeting. And, and the, and the Rapshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy, excuse me, that mere words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and to all of Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. In other words, come to Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your own, excuse me, able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trusted in Egypt for chariots and for horses? Moreover, verse 10, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it. Question, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word uh, this morning. So like any other narrative, right, there, there's, this, there's these characters, there's a plot, there's a setting, there's conflict, there's climax, there's resolution, there's outcome. And in many ways, we're going to see in this text uh, that we're going to read today, in many ways, the narrative is about a battle between two kings. Two kings, an earthly king who calls himself the great king, and the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the omnipotent king of Israel. It may open with words spoken uh, from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, but it ends, as we'll see, in the powerful word of our king, almighty God. And the setting is clear, verses 1 and 2. The king of Assyria has already whooped up on the fortified cities of Judah, in other words, the outskirts of, of Jerusalem, and he has taken them. He's in the land. And so he sends his great army to King Hezekiah, who's in Jerusalem. And along with the army, he sends some of his high-ranking officials. If you look, that word Rabshakeh, it says the Rabshakeh. It says that because it's a title. It's not the man's name. In fact, 2 Kings 18 says he sent Rabshakeh, and he also sent two other officials' titles to Jerusalem with this army, uh, the, the king of Assyria did. And actually, the word Rabshakeh literally means to drink. Many theologians and historians believe that he might have been the, the chief cupbearer to the king they had back those days. A close advisor, the guy who drank the, drink the Kool-Aid, make sure it wasn't going to kill anybody first, right? 
So he may be the chief closest, but wherever he is, he's the closest adversary, excuse me, the closest advisor to the king back, Sennacherib, back in Assyria. And they're intimidating and they're threatening Judah to finish them off. They're saying, we're going to end it. We're going to pluck Jerusalem out of your hands. And if you notice, nine times in 15 verses, we'll see more later, nine times in 15 verses, the word trust or trusting is mentioned. In fact, look at me at verse four. On what do you rest? That word rest really is the word trust. So it literally means, he literally said, what is this trust in which you trust? The ESV and other translators use that word just to kind of make it flow better. But it's really, what, what is this trust in which you trust? And, and we've seen this message, man. We've seen it over and over in the book of Isaiah. That Isaiah has been saying, trust the Lord. And therefore, I think it's good for us to be reminded, even this morning, as Christ followers, that we're, we're passing through this world. We're not, this is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're pilgrims on the road to our final destination in eternity with King Jesus. And when he comes again, he will establish his eternal kingdom. He will wipe away all tears. He will do away with all sin. And he will reign and rule in righteousness, which is passing through. But meanwhile, while we're here, we're caught up in these two worlds, in these two realities, both of which command and call us to be loyal to them, to trust them. And if there was ever a time when the enemy of God is calling out to us, to God's people with an ultimatum, with a challenge to obey them, to obey the world, to obey the enemy, and not to trust God, it is now. So we may ask the question, as we have in the past, who are we going to trust? In the end, whose authority, whose authority, authority will you ultimately yield to? In whom will you declare your ultimate allegiance to? It's not a political question. It's a biblical question. Christians, in the days of the resurrection, have declared Jesus is Lord. That's no knock on anyone today. Jesus is Lord. People died for that. We say Jesus is Lord. You know, way back in chapter 14, Isaiah warned God's people that because they didn't trust, because they were faithless and sinned, they are to be ready and to watch, he says in chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, they are to watch for the crushing army, the Assyrian army that's coming into the land. Isaiah says this, this is what the Lord has planned and it will stand because it's also part of the Lord's purpose for the whole world. Watch, they're coming. The Lord will fulfill his word. Even this threat should remind God's people as they standing on a doorway uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the cusp of Jer- invading Jerusalem, it should remind the people what Isaiah has already said. It should, it should uh, uh, implore God's people to trust them that God will do what he says he's going to do, even if you don't want to hear it. In verse 2, Rapshika called out to Judah in Jerusalem. Look what it says. As he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Have you remember that? Do you remember that location? You should. Well, you, if you're not, I'll remind you. Isaiah 7. It is the same place 
that God told Isaiah in chapter 7, go meet King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. Go meet King Ahaz at the field, at this place. In fact, go tell him, King Ahaz, at the conduit, up a room, up a pool, and say to him, you remember this, I know you do, be careful, Isaiah's telling Ahaz 30 years earlier, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Remember that? Ahaz was at the conduit where the water is because he was protecting his water flow. You stop the water from coming into the city, you're going to devastate the city. And, and Ahaz, rather than trust God, he's, he's looking over, making sure he could, 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 could you know, keep his water supply coming into the city rather than trust the Lord. That's where Isaiah meets him. Now, 30 years later, they're back. And the representatives of the Assyrian army are, know the spot and know how valuable the water supply is. So they're there calling on Jerusalem, Hezekiah, and Judah to meet them there. That, that's another word saying, listen, we could just shut this off. It's, an, it's a matter of, it was very actually strategic and very intimidating. And as they threatened Judah, Hezekiah sent three of his top officials out. Eliakim, over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joha, the, the recorder, Joha. Government officials, not military that ship sailed. And as the plot thickens, I can't help but think of times in our lives when we, we, have, we have done all we could, done not only what we could do, we, we've done all that we should do, and we find ourselves at the end. No place to go. Nowhere left, nowhere left to run. Simply just to wait, Trust in God. Not fear, not worry, rest in God. So whatever challenge you may be at this morning, maybe there's something in your life. You've done all you could do, you've done all you should do. And now God's saying, trust me, wait on me. Look for me. Rest in me. Trust me with the will, with my will in your life. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. For there are things, there are people, listen, there are circumstances that want to cloud our trust in God and obscure our thinking and burden us so that we ignore God's word and not take it for what it is, the word of the Lord. And the world, the systems of the world, always tell us to listen to them. First John tells us, anyone to be a friend of God? You've got to be an enemy. If you're a friend of the world, you gotta, you're an enemy of God. We're not just talking about enemy of people. We're talking about world systems, the way the world operates. The world will always tell us to listen to them. They, they, they will continually voice their message that God is not our resource, that we should not trust him. Rather, in many ways, God becomes the problem. So we'll ask the question again, who will you believe? Who will you trust? Who will, who will you, whose wisdom will you follow? Whose hope will you cherish? Make no mistake, we are, we are in conflict. We've always been in conflict. 
God's people has always been in conflict with the things of the world, always. And followers of Christ, people who call themselves Christians, must learn to follow God, trust God, draw strength from God, live by faith, live by the reality that God exists, and rewards those with himself for those who seek him, Hebrews 11, chapter 6. Living by faith, living by the word, living by the promises. We like to sing that song, right? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There will be voices, there will be voices that speak against faith and try to force us to to choose fear over faith. Now in verses 4 through 7, (laughs) Rabshakeh speaks and asks really the main question, on whom or what do you trust this trust of yours? Do you really think you can talk your way out, verse 4, do you really think you can talk your way out of being destroyed by this great army with just mere words, vain talk, literally? Is that, is that the great strategy you have? And then in verse 5b, the second part of 5b, the question is driven home with the word now. And I think that's, that's done on purpose. In whom do you now trust? Why would he say that? Verse 6, they've been trusting in Egypt. <laughs> From what I read, the, the Assyrian army already did a whooping on Egypt too. They're like, they, they, pretty, much, they pretty much got him cornered. Whom do you now trust? Who are you going to now turn? You, you, you trust in Egypt. They can't help you. Mastery intimidation. Brilliant psychological warfare. Trying to get into their heads. They're at the water pool, at the water uh, place. You know, Satan uses that too, doesn't he? The enemy uses the mind to attack us. Thoughts of doubt. Rehearsing old tapes. He shoots his darts of lies. It's not a power encounter with Satan. It's a truth encounter. Dr. Neil Anderson used to say that. He's lost. He's defeated. No power. Don't watch those movies we watch. Ridiculous. But if he can get you to believe a lie through something he fires at our brain, then we bought that lie and we start acting a certain way. Rabshika is not telling the truth. He's, he's throwing the lies. I mean, it began in Genesis 3, right? <laughs> Did God really say that? Come on. Is God keeping something good from you? I think he is. And it's to abandon our trust in the goodness and the provision of God. That's what the enemy does. And Rabshika is doing the same thing, mixing half-truths, spins, and intimidations. Because he knows that Trust and faithfulness go together just like fear and faithlessness goes together. We obey, we are faithful to whomever, whatever that we trust. In fact, if you remember chapter 30 and 31, Judah sends tons of money, horses and and camels and treasures down to Egypt. Why? To solicit help from them. They trusted them. And they responded by saying, help us, we'll send you some money. This is an act of trusting in chariots, not in God. Fear rather than trust. They didn't consult, rely, or seek protection of the Holy One. No, they didn't do that. But you know, look at verse 6. Actually, Rapshika is right in verse 6. Trusting in Pharaoh is like leaning for support on a bruised reed. Right? A cane that can't hold you when you try to walk. He's right. Now look at verse 7. Things get really heated up. 
verse 7. But if you say, it's going right for the juggler, man. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. The Assyrian nation obviously knew that Hezekiah removed high places and initiated some sort of religious reform. They knew about it. And what he's saying to the, the, this nation is foolish, but he's saying is that Hezekiah angered God by destroying the idols in the nation, by requiring people to stop worshiping those altars and come to Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, to worship. Therefore, you're wasting your time trusting in God. They're, they're playing on the hearts of God's people who may have bought into this polytheistic uh, belief that the more gods you worship, the more gods you sacrifice to, the more you do, you don't want to offend anybody, the better off you'll be. That was their thinking. So, when, so then the people might say, you know what? Yeah, this, this controlling king wants to tell us how to worship and tear down these high places and make us go to Jerusalem. You know what? Let's not listen to him anymore. In fact, he's making things worse for us. Maybe we'll rise up against Hezekiah. Maybe we should surrender. This was written thousands of years ago. I can't help but see the relevance today. Are you really saying there's one God? Creator and sustainer of the universe? Only one who is to be worshipped? And the only way and means to come and worship God is through the sacrifice of his son? Are that what you're saying? That there's one way of salvation? Not many? But look around. Where is your God? Are you really going to trust him? That's, that's the lie of the enemy from old. And the mocking continues. Look at verse 8. I love it. They want to spot them. I don't even know what to spot means, right? I want, to, I want to spot you some military strength. I'm going to give you 2,000 horses right up front. It's like me playing basketball with Josh, right? Like, I'll need, like, some points up front, right? I'm not sure I can even throw the ball over him. I'm not sure. I, I need some points, man. Spot me. Judah could not even put trained riders on their own horses. So verse 9, what they're saying is, I don't need, I, I, no, I don't need horses, and turn, uh, they'll turn away their help. And it's really a way of mocking. What he's saying in verse 9 is this. You trusted in Egypt's help. Right? You, you sought horses and chariots from them. They can't help you. Are you really going to turn us away and not, help, not, not, not come to us for help? That's what he's saying in verse 9. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my masters when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horses? How dare you? And then verse 10. Bold, bold statement. Look at verse 10. I mean, the Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Bold statement. So in antiquity, in those days, it's not uncommon for a, a, an army to come in and conquer a land and the conquering army to claim that their conquest and their, the, the reason they conquered this land and that is because the God of that land has now defected and joined us. So the God's waiting and going, Larry, let me see who's going to win. Looks like these guys are stronger. Um, okay, you guys are done. I'm joining that team. This is not, this is not, we know that the Assyrian army was ultimately under the sovereign hand of God. This is, this is not a humble acknowledgement from the enemy of God that God is sovereign. 
He knows what he's doing. He's using us to, for his own bidding. That's how, this is a bold, audacious attempt to intimidate God's people. They're saying to Judah, listen, even your God is not with you. Even your God is now against you. He's on the other side now. Lies, intimidation, false accusation are meant to bring God's people away from faithfulness and trusting and relying on him. And this speech really just exposes the nature of the issue. We're going to trust? Who are you going to trust? Shall we trust, yield, and commit ourselves to God? Or are we going to rely upon trust in human might, human glory? That's the question. Who will you trust? Verses 11 through 22. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joaz said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. Don't speak to us the language of Judah, that's Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. And in fact, they're going to be like, oh yeah, whatever you say, we'll do. That's not what they do. Verse 12, but Rabshakeh, but the Rabshakeh <coughs> said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their dung and drink their urine? Hope you all had breakfast. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Now, just stop there for a minute. Notice, you have to notice now, but notice in this narrative, it's always king of Assyria, king Sennacherib. Whenever they talk about Hezekiah, they never use the word. It's only Hezekiah, not king Hezekiah, kind of just another just shot against him. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let him say that. Do not listen to Hezekiah, verse 16. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of his drink from the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to the land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you, deceiving, not misleading you, by saying the Lord will deliver us. Really? Has any of the gods of the nation delivered this, his land out of the hand of king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or Arpad? Arpad? Where are the gods of Sereferim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? The answer is no. Whom among all the gods of those lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. They were silent, answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Finally, the people speak up, verse 11 and 12. Unfortunately, they only speak up because they uh, you know, just wanted to keep the crowd under control. The officials implore Judah, excuse me, the official Judah implore uh, Rabshakeh to stop speaking in Hebrew. Use Aramaic. That was the official, that was, excuse me, the, the diplomatic etiquette of the day. What they're saying is, look, don't speak in a language that everyone could hear you, right? We don't want them to know how bad it really is. So just speak in a language that you and I know. Like, talk about, like, showing your hand. Like, we're not afraid we're going to lose, don't let anyone know what's going on. That's what they're saying. Not only do they ignore the request, they get even louder. Oh, so, so you don't want the men sitting on the wall, the wall in the city, the only ones really left, that their next meal is going to be their own pee and poop. They don't want them to know that. 
Sorry to say that, but that's the text. He warns them that it's going to get bad. When we, when we come against the city and shut it down, you're going to have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Your own excrement is the way you're going to try to stay alive. It's gross, it's, gross, it's crude, and it's shocking. And it turns our attention to the word that you see here seven times, delivered. Deliver or delivered. Seven times in this scene. Who does not want to be delivered from that? Right? To deliver means to extract, to, to draw out, to snatch away from danger. So knowing full well that the Assyrians got them where they want, they got the upper hand, there's a sense of, of, of hopelessness, he turns to the crowd and he starts his propaganda, going at God's people. Notice he calls them the king of Assyria, the great king. And Hezekiah, nothing at all. Verse 13 and 14, right? We, we, Hezekiah knows he can't win. And now all he is doing is deceiving you. That's what they're saying. Hezekiah knows he's trapped. He's just deceiving you. He's making you think that all you have to do is call upon and trust the Lord and it'll be okay. But listen, that's not going to happen. He's deceiving you. In fact, what you really knew, what you really need to do is trust me. That's what, that's what the enemy is saying. Trust me. Make peace with me. You're not going to be eating your own excrement, actually, but when we attack and take over Jerusalem, this is what he's saying, we'll let you go back to your own land and you could eat of your own crops. Like that never happens. And in fact, when it's time to exile you, to, to put you in chains and to drag you off to our home, man, it's going to be so good there. It's going to be just as good as you have it now, verse 16 and 17. And the hope is that people are like, it's really bad here, pee and poop, not good. (laughs) Fig trees, yeah, that sounds better. Food, yeah, let's, let's, let's take Hezekiah and take him out. Like, this sounds much better. That's the point. That's the point. The hope is that the people will turn. And this blasphemous statement claims, think about it, that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is more trustworthy than God. That's what he's saying. God will let you down, but if you trust us, the Assyrians and the Assyrian king, we'll open the gate, come, everything will be well. Now listen carefully. That is, again, an age-old lie of the enemy. Listen, you don't have to listen to God's word. You, you can violate God's word. It's going to make you happy. It'll make you happy. Don't listen to what God has to say. He's just trying to control you and cause you not to have real joy in your life. Just be happy. Rapshika is a false prophet <laughs> offering a false peace. That is how the devil and his demons operate. God promises people, his people, peace, rest, contentment, security, and the counterfeit comes with their own deliverance and dangling it before God's people. Always trying to doubt the goodness and promises and rest and kindness and goodness of God, essentially calling God a liar. He's untrustworthy. We'll just dangle this before you. It seems like it will help for the moment. Give you what you think you need. But really, it will bring you into bondage, as it always does. Now, Tim Keller wrote a great book called Counterfeit God. If you never read it, 
I, I, applore, I, I recommend it to you. Counterfeit God, Tim Keller. This is what he writes. He says this. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. Right? The thing that make you, the think, the, the thing that you think you need to have joy and, and value and meaning. No person, not even the best, can give you what your soul needs. He says this cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but especially we we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. But when you finally realize it doesn't work, there's four things you can do. You could, you could blame the thing or blame the person that's disappointing you and try to move to something better. He says that's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. You could, you, you, could, you could blame them or you could blame yourself, beat yourself up. Self-loathing and shame. Or you can blame the world. Listen, that's, that's how people get hard. This is the way life is. Or he says you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. Satan is there all along the way saying, listen, make peace with me. You'll have joy for the moment. Surrender. I'm more appealing. It's more satisfying. Listen, we'll stay in Jerusalem and starve. And here's the bait. Sennacherib was right. Hezekiah cannot be delivered from Jerusalem. He's not going to by his own strength. He knows and he knew he did not have the forces to resist the army. But Sennacherib was wrong to think that Hezekiah was going to try to take and defeat and be delivered on his own. What was needed was the deliverance of the mighty power of Almighty God. In fact, in verse 415, when Rapshika repeats, look at verse 15, uh, he says that Hezekiah said, the Lord will surely deliver you. That's two verbs together. Deliver, he will deliver. It's an emphatic way of promising that God will certainly and surely and completely deliver them. Now listen, family. We can run to things for our deliverance, right? We can seek what our souls what we think our souls will be satisfied in, even if it's good things. But they never satisfy. They never satisfy the soul. Or we could turn to Christ. Or or we could turn to Christ and the gospel to satisfy the hunger of our soul, the very presence of God in the person and work of Jesus, and know that our sins have been forgiven, that we are eternally loved, wonderfully accepted, and we will never, ever, he will never, ever, Leave us. Psalm 16. You, O Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, verses 18 through 20, as we conclude the second piece, the even more blasphemous statement. The narration, or the, the narrative moves from the Lord will not deliver you to the Lord will, 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 will cannot deliver you. Not only will he not, he cannot don't let Ezekiah, verse 18, uh, mislead you to thinking that he could. And what, I, what, what, what Sennacherib and the Assyrian army doesn't understand or hasn't gotten through or don't really realize is that since he's a false prophet, he doesn't have the word of the Lord. Israel has the prophet of God, Isaiah. Isaiah has already told him back in chapter 8 that the waters will come. In other words, the Assyrian nation will come. And remember, you remember this in chapter 8? It'll come right up to their neck. Jerusalem will be underwater up to their neck. But that's as far as it will go. And then Isaiah says, there will come a time. This is in chapter 10. Now listen to this. The Lord, when he is finished with his work on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will then 
punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. That's the truth. But Ratzika, and, and, and because, you know, the Bible says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit, he's looking around. Look what he, he's looking at history. He, he, sees, he, sees, he sees what's going on in history. Um, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20. He's saying, listen, none of the gods of the nations have, were able to deliver me, uh, d- deliver their land. Uh, we, we've taken all the land. We've taken all the, the, those who say they're going to trust in their God. How are you, do you think, that you're trusting in the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of hosts? How is he going to be able to deliver you? Nobody else has. That was one fundamental mistake. The Lord is not one of earth's gods. He is not even the greatest of any earth god. He is other than all other Anything in all creation, he is above that, superlative, beyond. And what he failed to realize is whatever happened with those gods in which he conquered is irrelevant. Is irrelevant. He's facing a being, a holy one, completely different other than anything he has ever faced before. Before And whether or not Jerusalem will be delivered has nothing to do with the power of the Assyrian army. But whether or not Israel will throw herself on the mercies and the grace and trust their God. They will eventually answer to God, all men will. Who will we trust? That's the challenge. That's the ultimatum that's before that. Will you trust us, the enemy, or will you trust God for your provision? You know, while in Babylon, three Jewish boys were called. You want to open up some windows if you're getting warm, you go right ahead. Uh, three Jewish boys commanded to serve and worship in, in Babylon a king, an idol actually, something made of gold. And these, these Jewish boys were told, you will bow down and you will worship and you will serve this idol. They were told, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Then it says in Daniel 3, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's Nebuchadnezzar. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Knowing their Bibles, they refused. Worship God and him alone. And I'm sure it was intimidation that Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, that's that's what y'all want to do. Put the fire up seven times. Seven times more than it usually is. And I love the response of these boys. They said this. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this. It's like when there's no debate. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known. O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, that's trust. That's trust. That's what faith looks like. Their their faith assured them of things hoped for, convinced of things not seen. And God is able to deliver us. He has the power to do so. He may not. But no matter what, we're convinced. We're trusting him. We're not going to bow down to idols. We're not going to bow down to enemy. We're not going to take the easy road out and worship anything or anyone but God alone, regardless of outward circumstances, regardless of intimidation, and regardless of the conflict. God alone can deliver. 
They trusted God. They trusted his word. They trusted his character. And they trusted him for their deliverance. Number three. In whom will you listen to? Let's hear the last part. Isaiah chapter 36, verse 22. Then Eliakim, right, there was silence. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, over the house, Shebna the secretary, Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, Eliakim who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and, look what it says, the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet. Go to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of disgrace, of rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God, notice that, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray. Lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse five, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the young men of the king of Assyria reviled. Reviled me. Behold, verse 7. I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor, return to his land, and will make him fall by and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. First response, tear clothes. In Hebrew culture, you tear your clothes. It's associated with mourning and lamenting. A lot of times because someone has died, there's brokenness and mourning, or someone's about to die. And the torn clone to be a, uh, clothes would be a sign of distress, grief. Not only that, that they have to go and give this message to the king, but also the fact that God, their God, has been blasphemed and that Jerusalem now is being threatened. Back in chapter 22, Isaiah told Judah, told Jerusalem, stop your, your, your singing, if you remember, Stop your singing, your joyful carousing, eating and drinking as if everything is okay. It's not okay. You should be weeping and wailing, putting on sackcloth because of the Assyrian threat back then. They didn't listen, but now God's got their attention. They're going to respond more appropriately. Now in verse 1 of chapter 37, the king hears it. He tears his clothes. Notice that? But he does something more. He not only tears his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth. A sign of mourning, yes, but a sign of contrition. A sign of humiliation. A sign of, 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 uh, of repentance. Hezekiah is accepting the fact that he's the king. He is ultimately responsible for the trouble that fell upon the nation. And therefore it is he, King Hezekiah, who must be the first to repent of his own sin. That's leadership. That's headship, guys. Willing to to first repent of his own sin. Verse 2 is the pivoting point. The climax has come to the story. The resolution begins. Hezekiah sends his most you know, influential delegation to the prophet Isaiah, Shebna, Eliakim, elders and priests, senior leaders, religious leaders all go to him. Meanwhile, what does Hezekiah do? He goes to the temple. He's going to the temple to seek the Lord, the dwelling place, the living God, publicly confessing to the nation that he misdirected, he sinned against God. 
And I think, and I, I read this in a couple of commentaries, I agree. I think, I think that it's okay to say that he's running to the temple where there are sacrifices, atoning for sins are going on in the temple. There, there are sacrifices and atonement going on. And I would not doubt, I know it's a little speculation, but I would not doubt that this humble, contrite, and repentant king is doing that as he's seeking the face of the Lord. How happy is a nation when its leaders are seeking the face of the Lord, or are going to the temple and finding what the Lord has to say? The king, the priest, and the prophet are now united. The convoy comes to them, and they, and they, 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 they speak words of, of brokenness to Isaiah from Hezekiah, this is the day, verse 3, distress, rebuke, and disgrace. Children come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Another, a number, another humble expression of his failure. You know, up to this point, Isaiah has not been saying nice things. He's been rather harsh, rightfully so. And now they're humbling themselves. They're going to the prophet. People are helpless. Distress, rebuke, disgrace speaks of not only the Assyrian nation, not only what the people are, are, are going through, the calamity they brought on themselves, but I do believe, especially because of, of the Hebrew scriptures, that the, the, the displeasure of the Lord, they knew the sovereignty of God, that God now was visiting their land because of their sin. I do believe that. And Hezekiah turns to Isaiah, comparing a situation of pregnant women who can't give birth. The metaphor is, is not only stress, it's not only need and suffering, but we need someone to help. The, the baby can't come, the, the women are without strength. We need intervention. That's the reality of, of this picture. In verse 4, they continue to speak. And they ask him, listen, it, it, it may be, it may, perhaps God will hear us. In other words, God will act. And the issue is not so much can he uh, uh, will he, or uh, uh, can he, but will he? Will, will God act? We know he can. And the greatest concern they have is for the living God, for the contentment that was brought against God. Look what it says. It says he sent, we know, verse 4, that the Syrian nation was sent to mock the living God. The living God, not the dead God, not the God of these nations that were stone and, and rocks and wood that were never alive. Our God is alive forevermore. And therefore, he alone can act, right? There's been contempt and rebuke against our God. It's like David and Goliath, you know the story. David's like, yeah, we're not going to sit back and let you talk about our God that way. There was contentment against God. So Hezekiah says to Isaiah, pray, pray, seek the Lord. Let me know what God has for us and I will obey. Pray to your God. Pray to your God, verse 4. It's just another way to humble himself. Humiliation, testifying that he brought this upon the land. Nothing I can do. It ain't about me being king. Isaiah, you're a spokesman of God. Is your God right now. I know I've, I've disappointed him. I've rebelled against him. Talk and pray to your God. Just an act of humility. That's all that is. An act of immuno, uh, 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 humility. That's when God comes, right? That's when God comes, when we're end of ourselves, when, when I, I, I know I blew it, I, I know I failed, I know I made a mess, and now I have no place else to go but to the temple of the Lord, to run to God. And God comes with the word. That's when God comes with the word. The Assyrian army and the Assyrian empire are going to find out in one moment here, going to find out that the greatest weapon in all of Israel, the greatest tool to defeat any army in all of Israel is not the military power. It is the prophet of God. 
The word of the Lord is coming. That's, that's what they should be afraid of. God's man is going to speak on God's behalf. Isaiah, excuse me, Elisha, 2 Kings 6, read that. When the prophet was called, game over, mic dropped. When you speak, when I speak, whoever speaks, when a word is spoken, it can only come to pass, it can only be fulfilled if the one speaking it has the authority and the power and the ability to accomplish what was spoken, right? So when your six-year-old son says, you know, it's 3 a.m., I'm going to play in the backyard, you're like, no. Right? I'm the parent. I have the authority, the power, and the ability to stop you from that happening. No. But if three state troopers show up at your house with a warrant signed by the judge and says, come with me, you'll be like, okay. They have the authority and the power and the ability to take you out. God Almighty, the supreme, all-powerful, sovereign Lord, reigning ruler of the universe, spoke the world into existence, sustains every single aspect of life, every star in every galaxy, every breath we breathe has said in Isaiah, my word goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, it shall accomplish what it was purposed, and shall succeed the thing in which I sent it. God is going to speak, verse 6 and verse 7, and we'll close. Isaiah says, tell your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. With the young man of king of Assyria reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor, return to his land, and I will make him fall. I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Don't be afraid. Again, don't be afraid. Trust me. I heard the blasphemy. I heard the scoffing. I heard the reviling and the taunting. Trust me. I will say and I will do. In fact, not only I will I say and do, I will show my supremacy I will show my sovereignty over all the nations by placing a spirit within the king of Assyria. He'll hear the rumor and he will do as I command him to do. I will destroy him by his own land. I was told a long time ago, we are, listen family, you are, I am 100% predictable to God. God does not go, I'm going to work to orchestrate the circumstances. I wonder how Lou's going to respond. It doesn't work that way. He knows exactly how I'm going to respond. Right? Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And Oswald was, uh, excuse me, Oswald was right. The spirit mentions, not the Holy Spirit, not an angelic spirit, but rather an attitude, a disposition, or a feeling. God is going to predispose Senechib to leave, and that's what he does. He runs home. We'll read that next week. And when the dust settles, I think the question for us is, what are we going to do? Where are we going to run? Who are we going to trust? Where are we going to get our deliverance? And who are we going to listen to? Are we going to trust God or trust the enemy? Are we going to trust what God has said and listen to what he says? No matter what the odds and no matter what the circumstances, trust the Lord, trust his word, listen to him, know his character through his word, trust his power. He will accomplish that in which he sets out to do. There are many things in scripture that we can look to today, and we'll close right now. The band, you guys can come on up. Now, listen to me, family. A lot of things, we see a lot of things of God speaking and a lot of things God revealing and God fulfilling all that he promised to do. And we'll see what happens to the king next week. But the greatest, now listen to me, the greatest reason and 
to trust God's word is the gospel. We've been calling this series The Gospel According to Isaiah because of chapters like this. This struggle between the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian empire, the strong and mighty king of Assyria, and Judah, who's without hope, is a picture of Christ and our salvation, the work of Jesus. It was Jesus' intervention, his deliverance, his ability to snatch us from danger and rescue his people from from Satan's tyranny, from from the penalty of sin, uh, separation from God, a people who had no chance to defending themselves and then God steps in gives us a promise sends his son goes to the cross rises from the dead and defeats the enemy of sin Satan death and hell Romans 5 while we were still weak that word weak is helpless without strength at the right time Christ died for the ungodly that's you and me God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners didn't wait for us to get our act together Christ died therefore We have been justified, made right with God by the blood of Jesus. Much more than we will be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more we will be reconciled so that we will be saved by his life. Now, God can be trusted today. He promised the way of salvation beginning in 3.15 of Genesis and he fulfilled his promise, the perfect life of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, his death, his burial, and three days later, his resurrection from the grave. We can trust him. He has delivered us from sin, Satan, death, and hell. He will deliver us and bring us home when we put our faith in him. Our decision today is, will you trust him? What are you resting on? What authority? Will you trust him? Who, who, Who will your greatest allegiance be? Who will defend you? Who will deliver you? It's Christ, 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 because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, because of the work of the cross. We sit on this side of the cross. He has died for sins. He has risen from the grave. He has taken the wrath we deserve, and he has victorious overcome sin, Satan, penalty of sin. Let's worship him. Let's just spend a moment in prayer. Let's let's bow our heads for a moment. Lord, uh, you know where every heart in this room, you know everything and everything they're going through and that we're going through wherever we are. Lord, we, we just pray right now. Father, that you would give us a great measure of faith today, that we, we will trust you today. We'll rest in you today. No matter what the world dangles at us, no matter, no matter what the world calls us to, we, Lord, we're not going to finally and ultimately rely upon them. We're going to rely upon you. We're going to rest in you. You've shown us your your, your power, you've shown us your goodness, you've shown us your provision in the work of Jesus, our perfect, glorious Savior, the satisfying one of our souls. So because of the cross, because of the gospel, because of the empty tomb, because of the work of Christ, we trust you, Lord. And Father, maybe there's someone here who has never come to that place, Lord, we pray for them right now. That as we sing, you would grant them faith and repentance, Lord. That together, we as a church, will stand upon Christ and Christ alone. And all the worries and all the fears that we have today will just wash away through the work of Jesus on our behalf. So help us, Lord, to worship as we continue to sing for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.